page 1218, Revelation chapter 5. I want to express my gratitude to our missions committee who has really organized a fantastic week for us. It's been an incredible week. Last night was especially sweet as we learned about different types of ministries that we could all be involved with in and around Boston. And the goal for the missions committee for this week of missions conference has been twofold. First, of course, is to raise the necessary support uh, so that we can fund our missionaries well. Thank you for being a generous church. Thank you for being a giving church. Uh, thank you for praying about this and taking serious the, the God-given privilege and responsibility of supporting the spread of the gospel around the globe. Uh, but the second goal has been to engage us as a church in ministry. We don't want to just be the church that pays for ministry to be done. We want to be the church that is active in taking the gospel to our neighbors, to our cities, and beyond. And so the theme, Nations Next Door, is for you. It's a rallying cry to you that we're not just here to let others do the work, but baseline Christianity is you and I pursuing God-given passions, praying great prayers, dreaming great dreams so that we would endeavor greatly for the sake of the gospel. Nations Next Door is a rallying cry to all of us in this church that we would get out of our pew. We wouldn't treat Christianity just as the avoidance of bad things and church attendance. It's not a very useful Christianity that doesn't transform lives, doesn't transform communities. But you've got God the Holy Spirit in you for a purpose. And that purpose is that you and I would rise up and go and serve in the name of Jesus Christ. But it's easy and perhaps understandable to be discouraged in the work that we're given to do. It might be easy in this culture to turn the church into a sort of enclave, a retreat away from the rest of the world. When you look at the state of affairs around us just right here, Christians are in the minority. The Christian voice is being squeezed more and more out of the public sphere. Uh, we live in a land where the death of common sense is spreading rampantly, and, and the church takes blows because of that. And so when we talk in the church about doing things like pushing back lostness in Hingham or Boston or beyond, it can be easy for us to be a bit smug and cynical and say, I just, I don't see it. I don't know how that's going to happen considering how bad things are around us. I mean, how do, you, how do you convince an atheist that there is a God and the Bible is his word? And how do you convince a wealthy person that they have nothing without Jesus? Our task is hard. Fruit comes slowly. It's easy to get discouraged when we think about pushing back lostness in Hingham or Weymouth or Taunton or Boston. So maybe we should just give in to those fears. Maybe we should let that disappointment reign and instead we, just, we build thicker walls, uh, tighter doors, and we just make this space about all that we want it to be. Maybe our mission goes from reaching the lost to comforting the saved. Maybe... New England is just truly lost and there's not a thing that can be done about it. It was 64 A.D. And that year a massive fire swept through Rome and the city burned for days. Rumors began to circulate that the emperor, Nero, that he had ordered the fire. 
And in a feeble attempt to clear his name, Nero placed blame on this small, little-known group of dissidents, a Jewish sect known as Christians. This small group of people were um, the focal point of blame for this fire that burned so many buildings and destroyed this city. And as a result, they bore the brunt of the punishment for those fires. Due to Nero's false accusation, Christians were persecuted ferociously. One ancient historian, a man named Tacitus, who was not a Christian, described the suffering of Christians in Rome this way. An immense multitude of Christians was convicted, not so much of the crime of setting fire to the city, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as human torches in Nero's nighttime parties. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not, as it seemed, for the public good but to appease one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Tradition holds it that it was during Nero's reign that Peter and possibly Paul were also martyred. The writer of Hebrews describes the persecution of Christians this way. In Hebrews 11, he says, Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. After Nero came a ruler named Domitian, and he continued Nero's reign of terror against Christians, even expanding it and intensifying it. And so I want you to put yourself in the place of a first century Christian as best as you can. I want you to try to imagine the emotions, the feelings, the fear, the helplessness that these ancient brothers and sisters of ours felt. What would your outlook be? Your church leaders have been executed. Peter is dead. Paul is dead is dead. James is dead. It's most likely that by the time the book of Revelation is written, all but one of the apostles is dead. John is the only living apostle left. You've lost the core leaders of the church and the people you have suffered, that people you know have suffered unimaginable cruelty. And you yourself, as a mere follower of Jesus, you have lost your livelihood, your home, your security, All this simply because you follow Jesus. So what's your outlook going to be? When it seems that all power rests in Rome and it seems it won't be long before you're wiped out, when it seems your neighbors do well because they worship the emperor like all good Roman citizens do, it can be difficult to hold on to your faith. And it's at exactly this moment in time where the church is in the pressure cooker of persecution that God gives his word to John the apostle and the word given to John is what we know as the book of Revelation. 
The book of Revelation is a book of hope for the church in every generation. So many of us come from different perspectives to the book of Revelation, but one thing we can all agree on, regardless of our view of end times theology, is that when we read this, it ought to fill the church with hope. It ought to be strength for suffering Christians. It ought to be assurance for doubting Christians. This book is not meant to terrify us. It is not meant to be an unsolvable mystery. It is present day hope and strength for the church in every generation. It's written for the suffering church, but not just for the suffering church. It's written for the church that has forgotten its first love. It's written for the church with a rotten anti-gospel theology. It's written for the church who tolerates false teachers. It's written for the sleeping church, the weak church, and the lukewarm church. And it's a letter even for a church like ours today. And how does John use Revelation to fortify South Shore Baptist Church? Well, John gives us a portrait of Jesus that is intended to ignite our faith and fortify our witness. If you are not active in your witness, and if you are not active in kingdom service, it's probably not because you don't know enough information to do that. You spend 30 seconds in this church and you know how we think about the Christian life. We expect all people under the leading of the Holy Spirit with the passions and gifts God has given us to serve, to be gospel carriers wherever we go. So it's not a lack of knowledge. I think it's a lack of vision that hinders our fulfillment of the mission to reach the nations next door. I don't think we see Jesus right. I think we see our problems wrong as well. We see them as big and grand, Jesus as small and weak. But I believe that if we see Jesus in the fullness of his majesty, we're going to walk away a changed people. You do not come into contact with the God of creation and walk away unchanged or flippant. So when we carry with us a vision of the greatness of Jesus we'll realize that the lostness of New England does not stand a chance. And we will be a people reaching the nations next door. What I want to show you in Revelation chapter 5 today, one of the most incredible visions of Christ and praise of Him in all of Scripture. I want to show you a three-part vision of Jesus. This is all about seeing Jesus right. And so here's what's happening Prior to Revelation chapter 5, very quickly, in chapter 1, John is swept up in this vision. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, you're going to write down what you see in here. Chapters 2 and 3 are letters within a letter. Letters to seven specific churches who struggle with all kinds of things. Some get it right, some get it way wrong. But Jesus has a word for all of these churches in chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 4, John enters the throne room of glory. And there he uses language that in English still makes no sense to describe the indescribable. And he sees God seated on his throne. And around the throne are four living creatures. Their fronts and backs are covered in eyes. They each one have six wings. Around the throne of God are 24 other thrones. Seated in them are elders. And the elders and the living creatures all together praise God continually, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
chapter 4, God the Father is praised for his work in creation. And then chapter 5, where we're going to spend our time this morning, it's the same scene with a bit of a shift. Chapter 4, God is praised for his work in creation. In chapter 5, Jesus is praised for his work in redemption. I want you to follow along with me in Revelation chapter 5 as we see and hear what John saw and heard. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. Church, I want you to read this with me, please. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. It's unbelievable. Absolutely incredible. What we get to see in this book. And what moves all the worship, what fortifies weak Christians, is a vision of Jesus in all of his majesty and all of his power. Let me highlight for you very quickly three parts of this vision of Jesus that are going to push us forward in our mission to reach the nations. The first part in this vision of Jesus, Jesus fulfills the Father's plan. Verses 1 through 5, 
Jesus fulfills the Father's plan. So the scene opens with God seated on his throne, holding a scroll in his right hand. In this scroll, we're told it has writing on the inside and on the back. And that's unusual. This may not be unusual to you and I because we're not familiar with scroll life. Uh, But normally, you would write on just the inside of the scroll. You'd roll it up and you'd send it off. But this one is written on the inside and all over the outside. It's a way of telling us this scroll is filled with information. It's got a ton of information in it. And, and what is in the scroll? What is written inside? Well, look, we, we just don't know for sure. Nowhere are we told explicitly the contents of this scroll. But there's a couple of good guesses, and you, you're welcome to latch on to one of these and run with it, and uh, it'll be all good. One, one option is that this scroll is what we often refer to as the Lamb's Book of Life. It contains the names of every person whom God has saved. If you know Christ is your Savior, your name makes an appearance in Revelation chapter 5. Another option is that even if we don't know for sure that it's the Lamb's book of life, it could, we could just easily say this scroll contains God's plans, God's will for the unfolding of redemption and the consummation of His kingdom. You could call it the scroll of destiny, so to speak. It, it, the information in it is immense. There's so much, and it is so vitally important. How do we know the information is important? Because this scroll is sealed with seven different seals. Now, ancient scrolls were sealed in various ways. You didn't want to just, if you had sensitive information that you were sending to someone, you, you didn't want to just leave that open for anyone to see. Like, you know, an email account with the password, password, or 1234. You, you want something that encrypts your messages. And so it might be just something as simple as a piece of twine, or it could be something more robust like a wax seal. This scroll has seven seals on it. It's an excessive amount of seals. It speaks to us about the precious nature of the material inside, The contents are precious. They're they're not intended just for anyone. This scroll has a definite recipient, not just anyone who would come and take it. These seals are opened in chapter 6. And with the opening of each seal, you have God's judgment on sin and evil unfolding. So then an angel of the Lord asks in a loud question, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?" The angel's loud because the the call goes out throughout all creation. But no one's found to open the scroll. No one from here is worthy to open that scroll. No one from there is worthy to open the scroll. There's no one. And so when John witnesses this, it seems as if God's plans have been thwarted. And so what's John's response? He begins to cry. He weeps. He weeps because it seems like God's plans have been stopped. They're not going to unfold the way they're meant to unfold. Someone needs to take the scroll, open the scroll, so God's plan can begin to move forward. I think it's worth noting what John does not know. He does not know how this scene is going to play out. 
And so in a moment of raw humanity, I think John voices the frustration of the persecuted church and the church in every generation that has met with difficulties. There's this fear that what God wants to pass won't pass, that somehow his plans have been stymied. And like John, you and I, we work with such limited information sometimes. We don't have the mind of God. We can't open the scroll and discern its plans. And so we might weep in frustration as well, fearful that God's plans have been overthrown. When you think about the one you love who does not know Jesus and you are praying fervently for them, you might weep with fear. Or you think about the mission our church has to see the gospel go through our community and all the communities around us. You might think, man, there's just no way this is going to happen. It's too big of a work, too hard of a work. So we're right in line with John here. And isn't it interesting that it's John who's in the dark? He is the beloved disciple. Man, if anyone's going to have this insider track, the information, you would think it would be John himself, but even John has things that he does not know. Even John has a faith that is human and prone to fracture and fear and doubt at times. You and I are probably a lot more like John than we might realize. It's easy to look at this world and the enemies all around us and to be discouraged and to hurt. We see the problems, but we belong to a God who knows the solutions. It's already settled. So John cries, starts weeping, and in verse 24, one of the elders turns to him and says, excuse me, to verse 4, one of the elders turns to him and says, Are you crying? There's no crying in heaven. What are you doing? Suck up those tears. Rub some dirt on it. Look at verse 5. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So we may not catch this because we're not familiar with this terminology, but that elder is speaking about Jesus. And he gives two titles to describe Jesus. He calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he calls him the Root of David. These two titles are common Old Testament references to the Messiah. They're not inventions of the New Testament church. God's people have always looked forward to the arrival of the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Messiah who would come and accomplish redemption once and for all for God's people. The elder tells John, this one, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, he has triumphed. Look, it doesn't, victory doesn't hang in the balance. Book of Revelation is not some 50-50 battle between forces of good and forces of evil, and maybe, maybe the church wins out in the end. No, this is a settled matter once and for all. John comes into the scene with a limited knowledge, but what he walks away with is this vision of Jesus Christ, the one whom the Old Testament looked forward to, the one of whom the prophets foretold, the one who accomplished redemption once and for all, for all those who belong to God. He walks away with this vision of Jesus, the triumphant victor who is unfolding the plans of God to perfection. We don't have any clue what's going to happen around here tomorrow. No idea where this country's going or what's going to happen with it. No idea what this world is in for. Now, the prophet Daniel gives us a bit of insight. 
as to the trajectory of history. But wherever all of this goes, one thing is for certain. Christ is triumphant. He unfolds the plans of God. His ways are not in doubt. The accomplishment of his goals do not hang in the balance. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen again, gives strength to Christians of finite knowledge and of tremendous doubt and so much fear. When we look to him, we see the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, who holds the scroll and unfolds once and for all the perfect sovereign plans of God the Father. There's a second part to this vision. First, we've seen Jesus enter the scene. He, he, he comes to take the scroll. He's worthy of it. Second part of this vision, Jesus is unmatched in greatness. Jesus is unmatched in greatness, verses 6 and 7. So the elder has told John, here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's the root of David. Verse 6, John says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So John sees Jesus and it's the first time John has seen Jesus since the ascension. It's perhaps been as long as 60 years, maybe more. And the one he sees in this vision is like the Jesus he knew, but profoundly different. He's a lion, but he looks like a slaughtered lamb, and he is standing. And this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. This is where you and I come face to print with the symbolic nature of John's visions. The seven horns represent Christ's unmatched power. This was a common language throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the use of a horn always symbolized strength and power and might. And so to say that the lamb who was slain has seven horns, horns is to say he has perfect power he has all power he is the omnipotent one and this lamb also has seven eyes the seven eyes represent christ's complete knowledge his total knowledge he is the omniscient one but we're also told in verse six that these eyes are the seven spirits of god that are sent out into all the earth these eyes have a mission to share this knowledge. Now, Jesus doesn't acknowledge John, but he moves towards the throne. And then Jesus Christ, God the Son, with all the power and all the knowledge, takes possession of the scroll. This is the only action Jesus undertakes in this chapter. He does not speak. All he does is show up and take the scroll. What do you think it did to the early church when they heard this description of Jesus read? Embattled Christians, weak faith, struggling to hold on. What do you think it did for them when they read or heard read this description of Jesus? I think they would be stunned 
at the confirmation of his resurrection. You see, when John says, I I was taken here, we believe that. That John really saw this. John really heard this. And what John sees is Jesus Christ alive and powerful with all knowledge and all glory. The church that may have felt like Rome was everything, Nero, Domitian, all these emperors, that they were everything, here they they hear and see once again that Jesus is alive and his plans are moving forward. I think that matters to a hurting Christian to know that Christ is alive. I think also the way it would impact these Christians is, is that it would strengthen them in the picture of Christ's power and knowledge. Jesus was killed, but he is alive, and he just isn't on life support. His power is unmatched. His knowledge is unsurpassed. And these are the same ways these pictures serve us today. Look, if you are having a crisis of faith moment in your life today, I want to urge you to spend time this week looking at Revelation chapter 5. I want you to look at Jesus, and I want you to think on the question, what does his death and resurrection say about my suffering? If you're feeling weak in your walk with the Lord, I, I want you to sit down with Revelation chapter 5 this week. I want you to look at Jesus and think on the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes and ask the question, what difference does Christ's strength and knowledge make in my weakness? When John gave this to the church, they didn't lay it aside and say, this won't pertain to us for another 2,000 or so years. This was food for the moment for the Christian who was hurting and broken to see Christ with all power and all knowledge and all glory makes a difference in the life of the struggling Christian. But when we have forgotten the one who saves us, we'll ascribe too much power to the enemy and not enough to Jesus. We'll feel as if things hang in the balance. We'll feel as if the enemy is strong and terrifying. But brothers and sisters, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who will overpower omnipotence? Who will outwit omniscience? No one. You see, Jesus is unmatched in his greatness. This three-part vision, we're seeing Jesus unfolding the plans of God, Jesus in unmatched greatness, all power, all knowledge. The third and final part of this, Jesus is worthy of all praise. When you and I see Jesus, when we envision him, we see him triumphant, accomplishing the plans of God. We see him powerful in all knowledge, but we see him worthy of all praise. Verses 8 through 14 Jesus steps up and he takes the scroll and the place erupts in praise. There are three songs that are sung in this section, sung by three different groups. The three groups of singers are like concentric circles around the throne. So the first song is sung by the four living elders, or excuse me, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. So verses 8, 9, 10 tells us that when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each one with a harp. They're holding bowls, golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Their song says this, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Why is Jesus worthy to take the scroll? Because he was slain. Because the one of all power and all knowledge laid down his life to work redemption for you and I who are full of sin. The death of Christ on the cross is the decisive act that changes the landscape of humanity. And so he is victorious not because he outwitted the enemy or escaped the enemy or he's amassed a great army. He's victorious because he laid down his life. It's the great paradox of Christianity. Victory has come through death. And what's the outcome of Christ's death? Verse 9, because you were slain with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He was slain, we were purchased, and we were made into a kingdom of priests to serve God. And those people who, are, who make up the kingdom of priests are from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Oftentimes, Good intending people will say, or use the phrase colorblind, will say, I'm colorblind when it comes to my relationships with other people. And what's meant by that is a good thing. It's meant that uh, I don't treat people based on their ethnicities. I give people love and dignity just because of their human beings. The ethnicity doesn't dictate any of that. Here, but here's the problem with being colorblind. The problem with being colorblind, one, is that we shouldn't have to ignore a person's ethnicity to value them. It's just something white people say. Here's the other problem with the whole colorblind thought. Heaven's not colorblind. Chapter 7, around this very same throne, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. John sees ethnicity in glory. Several years ago, Melissa and I were given this great gift, the opportunity to go to Israel, and on one of the stops, we're at this Jordan River baptism site, and uh, you, you pay the money, and you, you get a cheap white robe uh, that requires clothing underneath, and then you go to the water. And uh, it was a really, I just wasn't sure what all this would be like. I felt like it might be tourist trap supreme. I just didn't know. I mean, when we got to this place, we just saw people in all sincerity praising Jesus in so many ways. So you've got all these different ethnicities down in the water. And suddenly someone started to sing Amazing Grace in English and then everyone else started singing it in whatever language they knew. Everyone knew the tune. They sang it with their own heart language. And I just thought, man, this, this is what heaven's going to be like. With better robes, but this is what heaven's going to be like. <laughs> we can't be an ethnocentric church. We live in a town that is not exactly a picture of ethnic diversity. So perhaps we should set our eyes to other places around us where we can engage in a more heavenly way with people who are made in the image of God and precious to Him. There's a second song sung. It's sung by countless angels that surround the elders. Verses 11 and 12, John says, 
I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Right? He's not giving an exact number. He's saying it is countless numbers of angels. And they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. In the first song, the lamb who was slain was worthy to take the scroll. But in this second song, the lamb who was slain is worthy to receive all worship. And then there's one last song. In verse 13, John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and at South Shore Baptist Church and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. I mean, I can't hardly read this without being messed up by it because it is one of the fullest expressions of praise of Jesus Christ in Scripture. It's such a special passage. And it reiterates to us that Jesus is worthy of all praise. Whether the church is persecuted or not, he's worthy of all praise. What he's done to secure our salvation, he's worthy of praise. Whether the days are hard or easy, whatever the issue is, he's worthy of all praise. When we carry that vision of Jesus with us, it makes a difference in how we lead our lives. So John has shared this vision with us so that we would know the difference of God with us. Jesus is the conduit of God's plan. He's unmatched in his greatness. He's the object of all praise of all creation. And so, brother, you may look at New England and say, I don't think anything can be done to change this. And that would be true, except the lamb was slain and lives evermore. And sister, you may say, there's no way I can have gospel conversations with people. But you forget that you belong to the lion of Judah, the root of David, the lamb who has all power and all knowledge. A Jesus like that does not create a silent church. He does not create a weak church. He does not create an introverted church or a fearful church. He has created a people who will give everything for the sake of the gospel and the glory of the Lamb. May the vision of our risen King move us to reach the nations next door. Would you pray with me, please? So, Father God, we join in the praises of all your creation. And praise yet awaits you to think that there would be names in that scroll who have not yet heard the gospel but need to. Lord, give us a heart for proclamation. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are facing all kinds of trials and challenges. And in no way are those things small. But Lord, lift our eyes to our helper. Lift our eyes to our Savior. Give strength to weak knees. Put iron in our guts, God, that we would move forward according to your plan, in your power, and in your knowledge, with praise on our lips for all you have done. Father, don't let us look on the areas around us with any sense of fear or foreboding, but to know that your plans will not be stopped. Father, bring a harvest of souls and let it start here with us as we say yes to you and walk in your way. To you, the lion, to you, the root of David, to you, the lamb who was slain and lives evermore. 
We give praise and honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.